welcome back again to the Egypt Travel Blog Podcast and this ninth episode, which is part two on Luxor, Egypt's ancient monument-filled capital down south. In the last episode, we started taking a deep dive into what all is in Luxor for you to see and experience. And man, let me tell you, there's a ton. Luxor is the number two place in all of Egypt to make sure you visit after the pyramids of Giza. And there's a lot more sites in Luxor than in Giza. So we're rolling right along into part two on Luxor right here. In the previous episode, we talked at length about visiting the Valley of the Kings. And I shared a lot of practical info about planning and executing your visit there like which tombs you should prioritize seeing based on what you're interested in and how to get over there to the Western Bank. And we got all up into Queen Hatshepsut's business and history because her mortuary temple is another must-see site on the West Bank of the Nile in Luxor. Then I threw in a few other sites over there too, if you find yourself just not getting enough tombs and stuff. And we talked about the Colossi of Memnon and its ancient whistling mystery that was solved with simple science and common sense in the modern era. But all that was on the western side of the Nile down in Luxor. And now we're going to move along to the east bank and see what all is over there. Actually, we can move along by boat now, literally, back across the Nile to the east side where the actual town or village of Luxor is. This is where a few other really important sites are situated. And one in particular is at the top of the list of must-see sites in Luxor. And that is Karnak Temple or the Temple of Karnak. Okay, so Karnak is a huge, as we're saying now, temple complex. I've heard it's actually the second largest religious complex in the world after Angkor Wat, but it's one of my absolute favorite places in Egypt to walk around and explore, and I feel pretty confident in saying that I think you will be blown away by it too when you get there. So a lot at least an hour and a half to two hours to let yourself get lost in Karnak Temple and just soak it all in. You know, unlike most of the other sites and monuments in Egypt, like each pyramid or each tomb that was primarily built by and for a particular pharaoh in his lifetime or her lifetime, in a few cases like we've talked about, the Temple of Karnak was built up over the course of nearly 2,000 years by more than 30 different pharaohs. Remember how I keep stressing the importance of understanding just how old Egypt really is? You know, the Sagrada Familia Cathedral in Barcelona, by the way, the one that was famous for taking over 130 years to complete, and it still isn't supposed to be finished until 2026, even though construction started in 1882. Yeah, well, imagine the ancient Egyptians with Karnak. After a thousand years, the temple was still being built up and expanded more and more, and they just had to be like, you know, sheesh, when is construction on this temple ever going to end? And after a thousand years of building, they still had another thousand years to go before the pharaohs would be like, eh, we're good. I think it's done. You know, Karnak Temple is so massive that St. Peter's Cathedral in the Vatican and the Duomo Cathedral in Milan and the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris could all fit inside of Karnak Temple together, and there would still be plenty of room left to throw a party inside. Now, with most of ancient Egypt's grand buildings, not all of it is left standing today, all right? After all, it's been sitting there for 2,000 years more after the 2,000 years it took to finish it. So this thing's been around, sitting there, hanging out in Luxor for quite a long time. But more than enough of it is left today for you to be absolutely blown away by its scale and its beauty. And it's another of Egypt's marvelous open-air archaeological sites where you can walk around inside of it, you can touch the walls, you can feel the grooves of the hieroglyphic carvings with your own fingers, you can look up at the absolutely massive lotus flower-topped columns in the main hall, and still see 
some of the color left from the original paint. And you can just imagine how incredibly beautiful it all must have been back in its heyday when the walls and the ceilings were painted in these bold, bright, beautiful colors, you know, and huge flags and banners were waving in the wind on top of the pylons and the priests were walking around with their incense and chanting prayers to the gods. You can just picture it. it had to have been absolutely incredible. You can get a glimpse of it by just visiting it today, but if you just sit there and close your eyes and imagine what it must have been like two, three, four thousand years ago in its heyday, it's just mind-blowing. We have nothing like that that we've produced in the modern era. Okay, back to the present and some logistics, okay? So when you cross the river from the West Bank back to the East Bank of the Nile, you can actually have a boat take you right up to the entrance of Karnak and just walk across the street right on into the temple. You'll enter through the front door of the visitor center, and then you'll go back out the back door of the visitor center to find the ticket window. Tickets for Karnak usually hover around 10 US dollars or so, give or take a few bucks from time to time. Then you'll proceed to walk across the big giant courtyard in front of you or the huge ruins you'll see off into the distance. And once you get up there, you'll go through another little mini security checkpoint. And after that, there will be a dude right there by the entrance between the huge pylon walls. He'll tear your ticket and you'll be in. You're in Karnak. Some people like to be guided around Karnak and some like to explore it on their own. But what I'd really recommend, even if you're totally into being guided around and talked to the whole time, y'all know me from this podcast, I'm a big proponent of being guided when you're in Egypt, just because there's so much you'll miss if you don't have somebody there with you to show you and talk to you about what it is you're looking at, because it's just not really well labeled. And there's just so much there, you couldn't even put it all into a label. So even if you're into that, and you buy into what I'm telling you about the need for that, Karnak is a place where you'll want to at least take at a minimum a good half hour and walk around by yourself, just to experience the magnitude and majesty of Karnak in solitude. You really have to just wander and stare and peek around corners and be curious and get up close and personal with the oversized structures and the hieroglyphics on the walls and columns and everything. Karnak is just room after room after room of massive ancient beauty, and it's nearly impossible to describe. So you just have to see it. More importantly, you have to experience it for yourself to really understand what I'm talking about. But believe me, after you've been there, you're going to remember me saying this. You're going to think, oh, he was just hyping that up. And he was just, you know, talking about it like it was the best thing since sliced bread. Oh, my God. But when you're done, you're going to say, John was so right about this feeling of just being overwhelmed with awe inside of Karnak. I'm telling you, I've been there so many times and I just love it every time I go back. Absolutely adore visits to Karnak. All of what I'm telling you about for all of these reasons. Okay, my absolute favorite part of the temple complex is what we call the Great Hypostyle Hall. It's in the front center of the complex. You'll come to it pretty quickly when you're walking in. By the way, hypostyle is just an architectural term that means a big room with a roof that's supported by a lot of columns spread around the room. But the hypostyle hall in Karnak is the most famous hypostyle hall in the entire world. When you walk into this hall, the first thing that you'll notice is the enormous girth of the columns. They're far bigger than any other columns you've ever seen anywhere in your life. and you know, you're walking through these and you're passing them and then you look up and you notice the shapes of the lotus petals flowering out from above from the tops of the columns, making them even bigger on top. And then as you walk through the hall, you notice the sheer number of these columns all around you. I mean, they're just massive, 
and even more massive up top and numerous throughout the whole hippostyle hall. And I'd really encourage you to not just stay on the path walking straight through the hall, but, you know, veer off left or right into the forest of columns in the hippostyle hall and really get lost in there. That's where you begin to have this experience of, oh my God, this is absolutely amazing. Karnak is so wonderful. And that's where when you're walking among the columns of the hippostyle hall is where you can really sort of close your eyes or just find a corner to be alone in and daydream a little bit and where you can really get a sense of the majesty of what these ancient temples and monuments must have been like back in their heyday. There's nothing like them even today. Like we just don't build stuff like that. You know, hundreds of years ago when you had czars and kings and emperors building, you know, huge palaces, they don't even come close to what the ancient Egyptians were building thousands of years ago and just the scale of it, scale of the elements. The Greeks would build columns and we know the Greeks for columns, but the Greeks had nothing on ancient Egypt in their columns. I mean, it's just absolutely phenomenal. But like I said, this might not make sense how excited I am about it until you visit it yourself. And then you will absolutely be like, oh my God, John was right. These columns are just amazing. This hypostyle hall is just amazing. Karnak is amazing. Luxor is amazing. Egypt's amazing. You're going to love it all as much as I do, I promise. So beyond this room, beyond the hypostyle hall, you'll come to a series of open air and indoor parts of the temple with things like more ram's head sphinxes and enormous obelisks covered in beautiful hieroglyphics, which you'll also see covering the walls, swing the rooms and the temple's outer walls, et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to give away too much here as much as I've already kind of gone off on how awesome Karnak is, but I don't want to give away too much because I really want everyone to be able to take in and experience Karnak for themselves and form their own impressions of this place. But suffice it to say that I've been to Karnak dozens and dozens of times and I get excited all over again every time I go back and even every time I talk about it like this. Now, Karnak is the biggest attraction in Luxor on the eastern bank of the Nile. And if you only have time to see it and not Luxor Temple, you'll be forgiven. Don't worry. Luxor Temple is a much smaller temple in the center of the town itself. So you'll at least see it from the outside when you're navigating through or around downtown Luxor while you're there. But again, don't feel like you've been robbed if you don't have time to check out Luxor Temple from the inside too. Okay. It's another neat temple. But if you do have time, some extra time while you're in Luxor, then I still recommend giving Luxor Temple a separate visit as well. Luxor Temple is still a very impressive ancient site with some unique aspects of its own that Karnak doesn't have, like, you know, for example, the ancient Roman temple built later on its grounds, and especially the mosque built much later smack dab in the middle of Luxor Temple's grounds. You know, the practice of conquering civilizations, building their own worship sites into and on top of those of the vanquished is pretty common in history, but often the old sites were completely destroyed and replaced by the new constructions. So I've always found it really interesting and fascinating when you have layers of history that have all survived together to the present day, like you see inside of Luxor Temple, with the ancient Egyptian temple to the gods, combined with the later smaller temple to Roman gods, combined with the later mosque that the conquering Arabs threw in there too, just for good measure. By the way, the mosque inside of Luxor Temple is still in use today. So technically, Luxor Temple is still a site of religious worship for the past 4,000 years or so. So obviously, although it's for a different religion than what it was originally built for, but that's something neat to keep in mind too about Luxor Temple. The site is an actual modern day religious worship site because of the mosque that was built in there hundreds of years ago and is still in use today inside of Luxor Temple. You know, most people just do one or two days in Luxor, but some like Luxor's chilled out vibe and want to spend a little bit more time there. I can usually only do about two days max in Luxor myself before I get restless and want to move on to other stuff. But if you're staying longer, 
then you might also want to check out the museum in Luxor. Although it won't be anywhere near as treasure-filled and, and grand as the one you'll visit in Cairo, the Egyptian museum. It's also really neat to hire a felucca boat and go have a relaxing, long sail up and down the Nile. You know, feluccas are the traditional-looking boats with the big, tall, white sails that you'll see all over Luxor and some in Cairo, too. And they come with a dude who will sail it for you, and they usually speak English somewhat, too. So they'll be able to point out some things along the river that are really neat to look at while you're floating along and chillaxing. Many people actually jump on a felucca spontaneously because, you know, they're walking by and someone calls out to them and it's like, hey, you want a felucca ride? And they're just like, eh, sure, why not? And they go for it. But if you plan ahead, actually, to do a felucca sale or felucca ride, you can be sure to pack, you know, food and beverages to take with you. And you can turn it into a nice little posh outing, floating up and down the Nile River for, you know, an hour or two and just taking in the scenery and, you know, feeling the breeze and having a few dips and having some snacks with you. But Planning it, if you know you're going to be there, you know Feluca Sale is something prominent to do that's you know really nice and relaxing, where you get to see a lot up and down the Nile from the center of the river. That's something you know neat to do and think about as well. Like I said, most people just kind of spontaneously hop on them and they don't have anything with them and you know kind of do it for half an hour and they're like, oh, we're hungry now, or oh, we want to move on to you know have a drink or have a you know nice tea or something. I don't know, but just something to think about. Planning ahead for Feluca ride can make it even better. Thus far, we've talked extensively about the sites in Luxor to visit, and of course, I've gotten off track a few times and thrown in some sidebars, but let me now briefly switch over to talk about some logistics related to visiting Luxor. If you're coming from Cairo and you're not into the backpacker lifestyle, then you need to fly. Trust me on this one, okay? You're already spending thousands of dollars to journey to and around Egypt. Another 200 bucks is not going to kill anybody for a round-trip ticket to and from Luxor. It's only an hour flight, and it'll make sure that you're using your time efficiently while you're there. The alternative to this is the train, which I would not recommend unless you're, you know, say a college student or just really into the backpacker lifestyle. It's 10 hours on a bumpy, you know, developing world train car that starts and stops all night. And even if you book a sleeper car, it's more like a jail cell bunk than anything akin to an actual bed. Trust me on that one, too. Seriously, though, the train is not comfortable even if you book a sleeper car. I've done it several times, both in regular seats and sleeper cars. And it's just not worth the $100 savings over a comfortable round-trip flight on Egypt Air. It's going to be quick. You'll be wham-bam done. You're in Luxor, and you have you know the rest of the day to explore, and you have the, you know, your, your night to sleep in a comfortable bed. And yes, by the way, Egypt Air, totally safe and normal, despite what you may think or what you may have heard in the past. The only complaint I have about Egypt Air is they don't serve alcohol, but that's only an issue on their long-haul international flights. For a quick domestic hop within Egypt, like Cairo to Luxor, Egypt Air is totally fine, trust me. The other way to get into and out of Luxor is by car or bus, but that option is only available when you're traveling to Luxor from the Red Sea coast, not between Luxor and Cairo. There is no train between Luxor and the Red Sea, but there is a train between Luxor and Aswan, and if you're going on to Aswan, or if you come to Luxor from Aswan, The train is the best way between those two as well. And then Luxor and the Red Sea, like Hergata or uh, Elguna, any of those resorts along the Red Sea, totally okay to do bus or private car. Okay, got all that? Another thing to think about that I should mention, a lot of people don't realize that the Nile cruises, or at least the ones that foreigners can go on, do not go between Cairo and Luxor either. So a lot of people I hear, you know, talking about their planning and their notes and stuff in advance of a trip to Egypt, they're thinking, you know, we'll get to Luxor by taking a Nile cruise down there, and that'll check off the Nile cruise box, and we'll get to Luxor. Eh, can't do it. There aren't Nile cruises anymore. 
99.9% of the time, unless this changes in the near future, but I don't think it will. Just count on there not being any Nile cruises between Luxor and Cairo, okay? Your only options from Cairo are a plane and a train, and I'd highly, highly recommend just splurging a little bit and planing it, if you consider that even a splurge. You're going to pay about $100 anyway for a sleeper car if you take the train. A plane ticket round, that's one way, by the way. Plane ticket round trip is $200. So, I mean, it's almost the same round trip now that I think about it. So, just trust me on that. Plane to Luxor, if you're going from Cairo. Okay, now let me touch on some scams to watch out for for a hot minute. Luckily in Luxor, it's not nearly as vulturous as it is at the pyramids in Cairo slash Giza. So, you don't have to be as on guard here, even if you are on your own. But there are two scams I want to forewarn you about. Well, Maybe less scams than really just funny situations. But anyway, the first has to do with getting caught taking photos in the tombs at the Valley of the Kings. Okay, you're officially forbidden from taking pictures inside of the tombs. And this is actually reasonable since some of the tombs have original paint still on the walls. And they've survived for thousands of years because they're in deep, dark, dry places way down inside of these arid mountains in the desert, and the fading effect of light just hasn't destroyed them for thousands of years. So it would be a real shame for the fading effect of light from zillions of camera flashes in the modern era from all of us tourists to destroy them within, you know, a hundred or so years of them being discovered and opened after all those thousands of years of being hidden away from, you know, civilization. Anyway, you all get that, right? I mean, camera flashes can be a bad thing for ancient artifacts. We all understand that. So we understand the reasonable prohibition on having zillions of tourists a year taking pictures inside of these ancient tombs. But here's the flip side. There's low lighting already in these tombs for you to be able to see the wall art. And cameras today can take pretty decent pictures in low light without the aid of flash. So you kind of get good pics in there anyway without doing the things that destroy it. However, just keep in mind, it's still officially forbidden to take photos inside of the tombs at the Valley of the Kings. But here's the thing. People still do, of course. And sometimes when they do, they get caught by the tomb guards. Now, here's the thing about the tomb guards, okay? This is not their first time at the rodeo. They've been doing this for years and years and years. And they know that probably about every fifth person or so that goes down into the tombs is sneaking a pick. So they're looking out for it. They know some of us are going to be doing it. And they're on the hunt for who is going to be the guy to get caught. You don't even need the flash to go off. For them to know what you're up to because these guys have been doing this you know, probably since the time of the pharaohs. They know what gestures to look for. They know the body language to look for. Do you know why they're looking out for it so intently? Well, unfortunately, it's usually not out of genuine concern for historic preservation. It's because if they catch you, they can confront you and extract a bribe from you not to confiscate your camera or phone that you took the picture with. The deal is that if they catch you, They'll come up to you and tell you that it's forbidden to take photos, which you already know, and that they unfortunately have to confiscate your camera or whatever photographic device you are using. And of course, you're like, WTF? And they're like, yeah, 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 give me your phone or I'll go get the police and you'll be arrested. And then you're like, WTF again? And they're usually like, well, maybe you can give me a little something, something, and I'll pretend like I didn't see it. That's usually how this goes down. Now, Some people are so freaked out at the thought of being caught doing something that's prohibited or illegal and, you know, the thought of being arrested in Egypt for violating the rules. They're so freaked out about that that they're stupid and they shell out hundreds of Egyptian pounds to these really lucky tomb guards. And, you know, they're not even really guards. They're just locals employed to tear tickets and make sure people don't burn the place down. But trust me, 
If you do break the rules and get caught, don't get conned into parting with a pharaoh's fortune. A simple 20 Egyptian pound gift to the tomb dudes will be perfectly sufficient. They'll likely protest and say, oh, you need to give me some more. This is not enough. But you don't. Trust me. Just refuse to hand over your phone or camera. Tell them it's 20 pounds or nothing at all, and they'll be happy. This happens dozens of times a day, so no need to think that you're the first person to get stuck in this dilemma. You know, if this happens to you, it's even happened to me multiple times, and I just pony up and give the dude a few pounds to make him happy and continue on my way. And speaking of those same tomb guards slash ticket checker dudes, a more up and up money making thing they do is to try to give you a mini tour of the tomb or let you borrow a flashlight to see the lesser lit wall art. Just know that if it's not busy and they follow you into the tomb and start pointing out stuff on the walls, they're expecting a tip. That's just their hustle. Five or 10 Egyptian pounds is perfectly fine for either, you know, the pointing mini tour or for borrowing their flashlight. You know, sometimes they'll offer to give you a flashlight so you can look at the wall or if the tomb's dark so you can illuminate it a little bit more. But seriously, if you don't want it, then just politely say la shokran a few times, which means no thank you, and continue exploring on your own. Just know that if, you know, they're following the tomb, they start pointing stuff out and conversing with you a little bit. Oh, where are you from? Oh, da da da. Just know that that's the deal. They're looking for a tip and they expect one for their time, you know, showing you some things or letting you borrow a flashlight when you're done on your way out. Related to that, the reason that they can do this is because guides are actually not allowed to guide inside of the tombs. They can go in there with you, but they're not allowed to be a guide. And sometimes the instinct to start explaining and talking about the stuff going on or people have questions, and they have to you know, obviously answer them. Sometimes that is just a little bit too much for the guides. They know they're going to have to end up guiding and they're not allowed to in the tomb. So the guides usually elect to hang out back outside the tomb. So that's what these guys end up doing is, you know, just kind of being a little impromptu mini guide for a little, you know, back sheesh here and there. And that's how they make a decent little side hustle out of playing substitute guide when it's not busy and when they don't have a lot of tickets to tear at the door. You know, they'll follow you in and try to make a buck or two. And, you know, honestly, if there's one thing I've learned about Egyptians, especially poor Egyptians over the years, is that they always try to earn your money and won't just ask for it as charity like many will in the West. Even the poorest of the poor in Egypt almost always want to do something for you before asking for money, no matter how simple or humble the service. And that's one of the many, many reasons I just love and respect the Egyptian people so much. They're such hustlers. They're so smart and clever. And they want to work. They don't want charity. They want to work. They want to earn money. They want your money, but they want to work for it. Okay. The third thing to watch out for, all right, I know I originally said two, but I forgot to include the mini tour and flashlight service, you know, air quotes in there. So that was number two. So now the third thing is the alabaster shops. Luxor is famous for its alabaster crap. And if you're wild enough to arrange your own guide through a local company, or you try to pick one up along the way randomly, then you're virtually guaranteed get diverted to an alabaster shop at some point in your Luxor adventure. And the guide, and usually the driver too, will get a decent kickback from the shop for taking you to that one over another one. So the more seedy local guides will try to steer you to the shops that give the best and the highest kickbacks. And then they get a cut of everything you're pressured into buying. It's the same as the papyrus shop scam back in Cairo. So just beware. And unless you really, really want some alabaster souvenir crap, Say no to stopping at an alabaster shop in Luxor. A seedy guide and driver will be annoyed and pissy with you for making them skip it. But if it happens, then you've picked the wrong guide to begin with anyway. So let that serve as an indicator of quality, among other things, whether or not they're trying to push you into an alabaster shop. Okay, that is a wrap for our ninth episode of the Egypt Travel Blog Podcast, which turned out to be part two on Luxor. We did a two-part on the pyramids, two-part on the Egyptian Museum, I believe, and Luxor 
is the number two site in Egypt after the pyramids, and there's a lot more in Luxor, so it's only natural that this stretched out into a two-parter as well. I suspected it might when I started. One quick favor to ask of you, if you're getting a lot out of these podcasts and you find them really helpful, please take a second to pull up the podcast on iTunes or in your podcast app and leave both a five-star rating and a nice textual review telling everyone why you like it. The more ratings and reviews the podcast gets, the easier it becomes for others to find it when they're searching for info on traveling to Egypt too. And as you know now, there's a lot to know before you go to a place like Egypt. And we want to make sure that we're able to share this info with as many people as possible so that everybody has an absolutely incredible trip of a lifetime to Egypt when they finally make it there. So please go do those two things for me real quick. Five-star rating and a nice you know, sentence or two or paragraph, whatever you want to do, textual review so that it can help bump it up in the ratings and others will be able to find the podcast and share in the benefit of all of its info, share the benefit of my brain dump from a decade and a half as well. You can always read more from me on Egypt by checking out the Egypt travel blog itself, egypttravelblog.com. And if you have any questions at all about anything Egypt related, Please don't hesitate to shoot me an email at john at egypttravelblog.com, and I try my best to get through them all and get back to everybody as quickly as possible. All right? Have an amazing, fantastic day, week, month, and we will see you back here soon for the next episode of the Egypt Travel Blog podcast. Masalama Habibi. Habibi.